the world of romantic comedies is not one into which I often step. Though as I prepared to teach this section of Titus, I couldn't shake a particular rom-com from my mind. The great 1999 film entitled She's All That. For those of you that are familiar with the movie, you know that it stars the teenage heartthrob of the day, Freddie Prince Jr., alongside Rachel Lee Cook, who is also known for her role in some TV series such as Dawson's Creek and uh, the TV show Psych. At any rate, Freddie plays a popular high school jock who wagers with his buddies that he can take any girl in the school and turn her into the prom queen. Enter Rachel, who plays this awkward, nerdy girl that is to be transformed. But as Freddie begins his task, he soon realizes, along with the rest of the audience, that Rachel is actually very beautiful. He'd just never taken time to notice. So her natural beauty actually makes his work towards winning his bet very easy. He hangs out with her, talks to her, uh, talks her into getting a new haircut, dressing a little bit differently, more stylishly, and she's quickly voted onto the prom court. I mean, really, he does the equivalent of getting her out of Ugg boots and yoga pants and into a dress, right? She's kind of lounging around wearing sweats, not very cool, not very stylish, and, and he gets her to put on some more attractive clothing. The point, though, is, the reason I'm sharing this story, is that he never actually makes this girl beautiful. All he does is bring attention to her beauty. And this is what Christians are to do with the gospel. Bring attention to its beauty by living lives that are less like sweatpants and more like wedding dresses. You see, Jesus is beautiful, but many have not taken the time to notice. And we, if we're Christians, have been tasked with living good and godly lives in order that we might bring attention to the inherent beauty of the gospel. Our lives are to be golden settings for the diamond that is Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 14 are going to be our text today. And within our text, I hope to show you that God's grace transforms us into beauties and trains us to live beautifully. I'm going to go through it in two sections. We're going to see how grace transforms us and then talk about how grace trains us. Do you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have graciously allowed us to experience your grace once for all in Christ again and again each day and more and more in each moment. Though we will never fully plumb the depths of the gospel, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher this morning, and that you would lead us into knowing you and one another just a little bit more. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 11 through 14 are structured about, around two appearings, the appearing of God's grace and the appearing of his glory. First, we are confronted with the appearing of God's grace in verse 11, wherein Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation for all people. Paul answers how he does this in verse 14. By the Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. God's grace appears and it brings salvation to the world in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is unique to Christianity. Only in Christianity does God come to rescue his people. All other religions tell us that we have to rescue ourselves by depending on ourselves and doing enough good things. Christianity tells us the truth we already know. We can't be good enough to save ourselves. We're going to fail. We are imperfect people in need of a perfect Savior. And when Jesus appears to us personally, through the proclamation of the gospel, when we come to know him as our rescuer, our God and our King, we are transformed. When you meet Jesus, He changes you. Jesus compels you to turn from your way of life and towards God's design for life. He gives you a new heart, a new identity, and a new hope. Jesus gives us a new heart by changing our desires This means that our deepest wishes are no longer for self, stuff, sex, or power, but for God. He redeems us from lawlessness. He gives us a new identity by making us a people for his own possession. I mean, the phrase there, redeemed us, at the beginning of verse 14, it echoes Exodus chapter 19, 5, where God spoke to his people and said, you will be my treasured possession the love of Christ, it transforms us into God's people, into God's own treasured possession. I mean, when you follow Jesus, Paul's words in Romans 6 become true of you. We were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The words of Peter become true of you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These things become true of you when you follow Jesus. It's a transformation. Jesus lived a perfect life died a perfect death, and rose from the grave so that we might rise with him, that we might be made new to be like him. On the cross, Jesus buys us back from death. When we put our faith in him, he transforms us from paupers into princes and princesses who bear his own divine name. I mean, no longer does the Christian hope in unsatisfying and powerless worldly things. No, friends, the Christian is given a new hope. What Paul here calls the blessed hope. And that blessed hope is eternal life together with God and his people. It's in response to being given a new heart and a new identity and a new hope that Christians walk in the newness of life. You see, God's grace not only transforms us, 
but also trains us. The transforming grace of God is the foundation and the fountain of Christian living. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those that are saved by grace still require training. It's because even though it's true that we've been delivered from sin's penalty and sin's power, we are not yet free of its presence. And we can talk about salvation in this way in three stages, if you will. And perhaps you remember we've spoken of it this way before. Uh, There is a past aspect to our salvation. We have believed the gospel and trusted in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have been rescued from sin's penalty. This is what we call justification. Jesus took our penalty and gave us his righteousness. Secondly, We think of it in a present sense. We have been united to Jesus in his resurrection, and so we are free from sin's power. This means that we are able to pursue the good life, the godly life, by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This is called sanctification. Sanctification simply is becoming in practice what God has declared us to be in truth. It's living out our new identity in Christ Jesus. There's a a future aspect to our salvation. We've been united to Jesus, and upon his next appearing, we will be rescued from sin's very presence. When Jesus appears in glory, he is going to erase every trace of sin and evil in our world. And we will fully inherit all the immeasurable riches that are already ours in Christ. This is glorification. So to recap, past is justification, present is sanctification, and there's a future aspect to which we look called glorification. And in these verses, Paul is addressing all three, I think, in order to showcase the full content of the gospel. Paul is showing us that while we are God's people, we have not yet been perfected. And as God's people, we are being trained to live life according to God's beautiful design in anticipation of that life that is to come. In other words, we're walking, we're learning to walk in the newness of life. We're in training. I think physical training provides an excellent illustration. If you want to get in peak physical condition, you can't just eat donuts and burgers. You've you got to eat healthy stuff, I think. That's what I'm told. Maybe some kale now and then. You also got to hit the gym up consistently, even though it can be inconvenient and and painful. You have to do these things in order to bring about growth. It takes time to get into shape. That's what people tell me. So too with our spiritual lives. God is training us by His grace. He often uses what is a painful regimen that requires we give up things that are important to us requires that we do things that seem hurtful in order of better practices that are helpful to us, that increase our health. Grace moves us away from living out our old identity and into living out our new identity. And like physical fitness, spiritual growth takes dedication, and its results usually take some time to show up. 
what we see God's grace training us to do in 11 through 14 is to say no to some things, to say yes to other things, and to wait. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. The gospel changes our desires. Augustine said that all sin is ultimately disordered loves, where we love things that God has created in his place, above him, and in place of him. And apart from Christ, our lives are controlled by these lesser loves. And as a result, we embrace disorder and destruction. This is, this is dangerous. When you are living your life for yourself or for loves other than God, you are in serious danger. It's not by accident that Paul explains in Romans chapters 1 and 2 that God, in his wrath against those who reject him, gives them up to sinful passions to the desires of their hearts. Commentators point out that this cannot mean that God impels people to sin, since Ephesians 4.19 says that sinners give themselves up to sinful desires. It means that the worst and fairest punishment God can give a person is to allow them their sinful heart's deepest desire. We might ask, well, what is that? What is the sinful person's deepest desire? Keller takes a stab at it, writing, The desire of the sinful human heart is for complete independence. We want to choose and go our own way. And this is no idle wandering from the path. As Jeremiah points it out, no one, repo- no one repents. Each pursues his own course like a horse charging into battle. We want to get away from God. But this is the very thing that's most destructive to us. It's for good reason that God warns Cain in Genesis not to sin because sin is slavery. Worldly passions, sin, they destroy your ability to choose love. They destroy your ability to enjoy. Sin also brings blindness. The more you reject the truth about God, the more incapable you are of perceiving any truth about yourself or the world. And the end result of God giving people up to their deepest desire is hell. Hell is God actively giving us what we have freely chosen, which is to go our own way and to be our own. It's, to, it's giving us over to that desire to be the master of our faith, the captain of our souls. Our desires to get away from him and his control. Hell is God banishing us to the regions we have desperately tried to get into our entire lives. J.I. Packer writes, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever worshiping Him or without God forever worshiping themselves. Hell is a natural consequence. Even in this world, It is clear that self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness makes you miserable, makes you blind. The more self-centered, the more self-absorbed, self-pitying, and self-justifying people are, the more breakdown occurs relationally, psychologically, and, and even physically. If, as the Bible teaches, our souls will go on forever, then just imagine where the self-centered person would be in a billion years. Hell is simply one's freely chosen path going on forever. We wanted to get away from God, 
And God, in his infinite justice, sends us where we want to go. Away. Grace trains us to say no to hell. No to our own way of living. No to ungodliness and worldly passions. I mean, praise God that he uses the gospel as smelling salts to wake us to the reality of his lordship and the dysfunction that exists within our hearts. Not only does grace train us to say no to ungodliness, though, it also trains us to say yes to living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. In verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, Paul describes what walking in this newness of life looks like for different members of God's family. And before we look at the unique qualities of each group, let's consider one important quality that rears its head throughout. It's self-control. This attribute shows up in verse 2, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 12. To be self-controlled means to be sensible, to be sober or sound of mind. It means to make good decisions, to be wise or level-headed. And I point this out because while the the Bible gives us specific moral commands in a lot of places, it doesn't always tell us exactly what to do in any and every situation. Keller comments, wisdom is knowing the right thing to do in the 80% of life situations in which moral rules do not provide clear answers. In other words, Christians need to be wise and exercise sound judgment in order to live beautifully where they are. You have to think in order to live out a Christ-like life. And while Paul provides some specifics for us about Christian living here, his description is not exhaustive and it is not divorced from the gospel. The Christian living outlined in these 10 verses at the beginning of chapter 2 is erected upon and empowered by the firm foundation that's poured in verses 11 through 14. It is the gospel that changes us into God's people and it is the gospel that empowers us to live as God's people. And so Paul tells Titus and the other elders in verse 2, but you must say the things that are consistent with sound teaching. And then he comments to him in verse 8, your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that the opponent will be ashamed, having nothing bad to say about us. Paul is telling Titus and other elders like him that the first thing that's crucial to godly living or healthy living is to have godly doctrine, sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. He's telling Titus that his lips and his life must agree. That's true of all of our teachers and leaders. They're primarily tasked with presenting and protecting sound doctrine. It means that the most important thing I or any pastor elder will do for you is working hard to know the scripture in order to teach it accurately and to protect you from false teaching. In chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, which we looked at last week, we saw that false teaching will result in ungodly living. That those committed to an upside-down worldview will continue to live upside-down lives. Now, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul teaches us that those following the authentic gospel live sensible, righteous, and godly lives in this present age. 
those saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ are made new and walk in the newness of life. They, they begin to live right-side-up lives in an upside-down world. And that's, that's what the good news is at the end of the day, that, that we, in our rebellion, people had turned the world upside down by ushering in sin and suffering in our rebellion against God. And Jesus has come into our world to make everything right, to set it right side up. He's come to make all things new. He's going to return to make everything sad, untrue, to make it the way it should be. And so Christians, by the power of the Holy Spirit, strive to live out the reality for which we wait. My friends, our lives are to bring a foretaste of the glorious future into the present. And the right-side-up culture of heaven appears very strange, but strangely attractive to an upside-down world. This is why the church is always at our best when we are distinct from the world to which we wish to share the gospel. We're at our best when we are distinct from the world in which we sojourn. People see the gospel most clearly not in our sameness, but in our strangeness. In the way that we live according to God's word. So what does strange right side up living look like for me you might ask i think paul addresses us each in turn starting with older men in verse two older men are to be level-headed worthy of respect sensible sound in the faith in love and endurance i mean this is really awesome not to do a whole lot of thinking on this particular portion of scripture if you are an older man scripture speaks clearly to you Pray these six attributes will characterize you. Your physical body may be slowly deteriorating, but this is the time of life for your spiritual health to shine as an example. Let your life expose the world's lie that all of our eggs must be placed in the basket of physical health. When you go to the hospital for your third or fourth surgery this year, show the love of Christ. Your self-control and moderation, even amid incredible difficulties, are to command respect. I mean, at this point in your life, your faith and love and endurance are to be evidently robust, regardless of any faltering physical stamina. Your spirit is to be exemplary. I mean, pray these attributes would define you. Next, Paul speaks to older women. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not addicted to much wine. They are to teach what is good, so they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind, and submissive to their husbands, so that God's message will not be slandered. Mark Dever comments on these verses. If you're an older woman, hopefully you do not flinch at the word, older. Our secular culture encourages you to flinch because it idolizes youth and laments age when the Bible does the opposite. The Bible associates youth with folly and age with wisdom. Don't buy into Satan's lie that you should be ashamed of your age. Be proud and thankful for every year that God has given you life. 
and allowed you to persevere. By all means, let people know how old you are. And if you're going to lie about your age, inflate it a little bit. Pray that these qualities outlined by Paul will define you. Notice too, ladies, that Paul tells you to be good teachers or to teach what is good. This word only shows up here. It's a little bit difficult to uh, translate. The point, though, is the same, that you are to be learning sound doctrine and using that sound doctrine to teach and encourage others, especially younger women. I mean, what an incredible responsibility you have been tasked with, teaching younger women. I mean, if you are an older lady, I mean, have you stopped to consider that that's your job? To encourage others with what you've learned, especially younger women. Now, while Paul does not address young women in the same way he does the others here, the things that are to mark them are evident in what he tells the older women to teach them. He says this, younger women are to love their husbands and to love their children. Paul doesn't say anything to single ladies in particular, not because he doesn't care for them, but they would have been rather rare bird at this point in time. You're a young lady, you got married really, really young. And so he's addressing all young women here. It applies. Love their husbands and love their children. Be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind and submissive to their husbands so that God's message will not be slandered. It is funny here that older women are to teach younger women what should, I think comes pretty naturally to them, right? Loving their husbands. That's easy, right? They don't, nobody needs to be taught how to do that. Interesting, uh, interestingly, this is the only time in the Bible where a woman is encouraged to love her husband, whereas husbands receive multiple and detailed instructions in this regard. I guess we just must be harder of head than you. I don't know. Younger women are to be pure. That's chaste. Just as an elder is to be a one-woman man, so too a girl is to be a one-man woman. A little bit of a tongue twister. Younger women are to be homemakers or workers at home, or if you have an NIV, busy at home. The word that's used here is unique, and it's found nowhere in any other Greek literature. Paul basically made this word up. He, he took the word for work and the word for home, and he jammed them together. It's led to some confusion. What does it mean? What is Paul saying exactly? I think it's this. Simply that ladies need to fulfill their duties at home. They're not to neglect loving their husbands and children. A godly woman is to care for her family. I also think that Paul is working at a contrast here between a, the lives of a, a Christian woman and those of Cretans. If you remember, the, the Cretans are lazy brutes, they're evil, uh, they're lushes, they're, they're drunks, right? And so he's saying, ladies, if you are staying at home, like, be busy, be productive. Don't just sit around gossiping all day and drinking wine. Uh, I was talking about this passage with a buddy of mine, and he said, you know, like, if I was at home all day or in that situation, I'd probably just play Xbox all day, right? And I said, that makes good sense, right? Like, unless somebody told me otherwise, just binge watch some things on Netflix, whatever is going on. And Paul's telling him, be active, be doing that which is good. Even when you're at home, be caring for your home and for your family. It's important. Perhaps a, a better way to illustrate what's going on here is to point to that unreal woman in Proverbs 31, who embodies all those ideals of femininity. She's described in these ways. Trusted entirely by her husband, doing good, 
working with willing hands, providing food, dealing in real estate, a businesswoman who sells her own merchandise, a servant of the needy, not idle, one who does excellently. The list goes on. But everything the Proverbs 31 woman does grows out of her devotion to the Lord and is often expressed as care for her family. Whether she's working outside of the home or working in the home, her goal is to honor God by serving those members of her household. This makes sense, right? After all, the home is central to our lives. In fact, it's been said the home is where people are made. Mothers, I know that training our kids in righteousness is really difficult work, right? But remember that some of the most important things in life are repetitive and take time. As a pastor, I can empathize. People are complex. Shaping and sculpting others with the love of Christ takes time. And it often seems like nothing is happening. Don't be discouraged in this. Don't forget that God has specially tasked you with being the backbone of your home. Do not neglect your home and family life. Not for career, not for comfort, not for Cretan-esque living, not for anything. Young women, has something distracted you from, care, or from caring for your family? One of the ways a woman cares for her home and her family is by proclaiming the gospel through happy submission to her husband. That word submission causes many to recoil because our culture's hijacked it and made it a negative thing. But submission is a good thing. Everyone submits to someone. It means to yield in one's will to the leadership and direction of another and is more of an attitude than an action. And contrary to popular misconceptions, there's no inferiority in submissiveness. I mean, we see this plainly within God himself wherein the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equally, God equally valuable, yet for the purpose of redemption, the Son submits himself in his assignment to the Father. A wife submits to her husband, not because she is less valuable than him, but because she seeks to communicate the mystery of the gospel through her marriage by living according to God's design for marriage. A wife's submission isn't begrudging, but joyful. It happily reflects the Christian's submission to Christ, who loves and gave himself for the church, his bride, and is in response to a husband who loves and gives himself for her. God has designed marriage as a mysterious and awesome way to tell us about himself and his glory. By acting out the gospel in our marriages, we give the world a living picture of redemption. The grace of God appears in us. When this happens, any occasion for others to revile or slander the word of God, it, it's removed. Many do not like Christian talk about self-control or submission, 
but they find it attractive when they see it lived out. Unbelievers who are repelled by Christian teaching on headship within marriage are often attracted to and by the Christian marriages they see. Friends, are your marriages an accurate picture of the gospel? Ladies, do you have an attitude of happy submission? Gentlemen, do you have an attitude of happy self-donation? Both men and women get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Both give up things for one another. Both serve. After that list of seven things for young ladies to remember, Paul hits young men with just one. Sounds about right. Guys have ADD. My wife is a, can multitask. I don't know why he gives them just one. He just gives them one. This is what he writes. In the same way, encourage younger men to be self-controlled in everything. Young men are to learn to be sensible, to make good choices. And some things are more easily said than done, right? One thing, it's going to be hard for him to do it. And then the second part of the verse, in verse 7 and 8, Paul uh, is addressing Titus here and the others who will lead those younger men, saying, make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. And the implication is that young men are to learn self-control and to follow the example of Titus and elders and other good role models. And so the question for young men is, are you learning to exercise sound judgment? Do you have godly role models? Finally, Paul turns his attention to one last group, slaves. Verse 9, slaves are to be submissive to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Paul's not addressing the institution of slavery here, but speaking to slaves. It's an important distinction to make. Paul recognizes that slavery is an evil, and he condemns those that deal in kidnapping people and forcing them into slave trade. He condemns them to hell in 1 Timothy uh, 1, 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he teaches that if a slave is able to obtain freedom, they should. He goes to bat for Philemon, requesting his freedom from his master later on. But he's not speaking directly to that institution. At this point in history, slavery is as much a part of the culture as the government is. No one has even considered the abolition of slavery. It's also very different. When we, we need to realize that when the New Testament speaks about slaves, it's not talking about a racially discriminating type of slavery like uh, that was practiced in our country for about three centuries. There is no uh, distinguishing of slaves based on uh, color or where they come from. They're all shapes and sizes. The Bible talks about a kind of slavery that's surely worse than what we think of as employment but which is probably closer to our idea of employment than our idea of slavery, just because of we grow, we've grown up in our country and we have a checkered past when it comes to the institution of, of African slavery. All I have to say, if we're going to apply this passage to ourselves, we, we need to think of it as applying to employees. Dever comments. So what do Paul's five points of instruction say for how you should relate to your boss? He offers two negatives and three positives. Negatively, do not talk back to your employers. 
and do not steal from them. Positively, be subject to your bosses. Try to please them. Show them that you can be fully trusted. Christians should behave this way so that we will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Most first century slaves would have had non-Christian masters, just as many of us today have non-Christian employers. Have you ever thought about how God cares for your employers? How he might want to use you to reach them? Does your behavior as an employee magnify the beauty of the gospel? Or does it take away from it? Grace trains us not only to say no to ungodliness and yes to living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It also teaches us to wait for the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Waiting for the return of Jesus gives us an eternal perspective, helps motivate us to live right-side-up lives. We, we said that before Christ, before we are transformed, our loves are in disorder and disarray. What happens when we get transformed is those loves become rightly ordered so that we can finally understand that what God offers us is so much greater than what the world offers us. C.S. Lewis is famously written in The Weight of Glory about how apart from an experience of the grace of God that we do desire lesser pleasures instead of the greater pleasures. This is what he writes. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. When we come into contact with Jesus Christ, when he changes us, we're no longer satisfied with the empty things of the world. We realize that we never really were satisfied, that there's a truer and deeper and better satisfaction. We have a proper perspective. And we are compelled by that love of Christ to live right-side-up lives in this upside-down world. Jesus changes us so that we are irresistibly, irrevocably driven into living attractive lives. In this present age, in anticipation of the perfect age to come, we do this because we see how wonderful the gospel really is. God's grace has appeared in Jesus, and his glory will appear in Jesus. See, if you look at these verses, we live between appearings. And both of these appearings make up the engine that drives the Christian life. We look back to the grace of the cross and rejoice that we have been rescued from sin's penalty, and we look forward to the glory of Jesus' return and long for the removal of sin's presence. This is why we are motivated to live now like it's then. 
1982, Prince wrote a song called 1999. Lyrics went like this. I was dreaming when I wrote this, so sue me if I go too fast. But life is just a party. He says, and parties weren't meant to last. You guys know it. Dun, 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 dun. This war is all around us. My mind says, prepare to fight. So if I gotta die, I'm gonna listen to my body tonight. Yeah, they say 2000, zero, zero, party over, oops, out of time. So tonight, I'm going to party like it's 1999. In Prince's worldview, life is just a party, and parties weren't meant to last. In other words, this life is all there is. So have as much fun as you can find. Get as much self-satisfaction as you can. Do whatever you want. Follow your heart, because pretty soon life is over and you are out of time. Prince was exhorting his listeners in 1982 to live as if it were already 1999. At the time, he was telling his listeners, live now like it's then. Paul's worldview, though, is a little bit different. He tells us that grace has appeared and eternal glory is coming. He says life is not a party without meaning that comes to an end, but a party without end that's full of meaning. It's centered around bringing glory and honor and praise to the God of the universe. Christians live now like it's then because God has transformed us into Jesus' people and is training us to live beautifully so that others might also see the beauty of the gospel in us, hear the gospel from us. We must use words. We can't just live and expect people to deduce what the gospel is. We have to tell them. So those might see the beauty of the gospel in our lives, hear the gospel words from our lips, and believe the gospel with us. This is why we live out the glory of God in our lives, to honor him and for the benefit of others. Is your life making the gospel look beautiful? If the gospel were a person, are you dressing that person in sweatpants and a hoodie? Or are you putting them in a wedding dress? How does your life adorn the gospel of grace? Are you making Jesus look beautiful? I hope that we can help one another make the gospel appear as infinitely attractive and glorious and wonderful as it really is. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you that we don't have to earn our salvation by doing good things, but that we live good lives, godly lives, as a result of the transformation that has taken place within us. Father, you have given us a new identity, new hearts, and a new hope. And as we look forward to that great hope, we live in step with your word so that we might express our love for you and the truth that our hope isn't in this world alone, but that it's for the next world. Father, we thank you that we have been called together into community to exhort one another towards these good deeds, towards love, and to remind one another of this good news, that you are making all things new, that you are redeeming 
that which has been lost. Father, we thank you for rescuing us. We ask that you would help us to continue to be happy in you, rooted in the gospel. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.